Hello, I'm Farmer Charles, a dairy, beef and arable farmer from Warwickshire. And I'm Dr Rachel, an NHS GP from Oxfordshire. And this is The Pharmacy. So alongside farming, my passions are helping people to understand how their food is produced, where it comes from and how we, as farmers, are looking to protect and enhance the environment around us. And I'm passionate about empowering people to take control of their own health and well-being by giving them the information they need to make better lifestyle choices. But we know that the story doesn't end there. We're going to interview people from all walks of life to find out their perspective on food, health, where it all comes from and how it all fits together. This is The Pharmacy. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Pharmacy. Uh, today we are going to be talking more about meat and beef in particular after our fantastic discussion in the last episode about milk. I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, but Charlie, how are you? I remember, so you started off last time telling us that really you wanted a bit more rain. So that th that request came true. So I hope you're feeling happy. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it's an absolute freaking nightmare now, isn't it? Um, we're trying to get the combine going, trying to harvest the crops, and it's just, you know, Mother Nature's against us seems to be every day. We haven't had a decent day yet of harvest, and a lot of people up and down the country are worrying about the uh, quality of the crops that are coming in now. It's starting to have an impact. So, yeah, if we could have a bit more sunshine now, please. Okay, so you're requesting some sunshine. Let's let's see how that goes for next time. Um, look forward to seeing if, if you've got that much impact on the weather. That'd be great. I wish I had. You <laughs> <laughs> need it now, I tell you. Uh... So, Charlie, I'm going to leave you to introduce our fantastic guest who we've got today. So today we're talking to Nikki Oxall, who is a beef farmer from Aberdeen. Now, Nikki farms in a very different way to how I do as she very much has an emphasis on a more regenerative approach to farming and solely relies on grazing her livestock, both on pasture land, but also on the trees and shrubbery that's around. So hopefully that's going to lead to some really interesting discussions between us. Now, she's very much involved for the Pasture for Life movement, where she's very highly regarded, as indeed she is with many farmers in general, myself included. Um, I've followed Nikki now for a number of years online, and, but I think we've only actually met them once in person, am I right? Which was at the Oxford Farming Conference Great British Beer Debate, which I've got to say it was an absolutely superb evening. Um, I'm not sure if we've got a completely coherent recollection of the whole night, but um, let's just say that it's not something I'd recommend you go to on an empty stomach. Let's put it that way. <laughs> No, it was it was a great uh, a great evening, um, and yeah, all I remember from that evening was being told to be quiet a lot because we were all tasting our beers and not listening to the tasting notes uh, because we were all too busy chatting to all these lovely people that we were getting to meet to meet for the first time. So um, yeah, it was great, great fun. Yeah, it was more than just a little taste. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Nikki, thank you very much for coming on and joining us. Um, and please, yeah, do you want to give yourself a bit of an introduction? Tell us about yourself and uh, the Wee Mub. Thanks so much. Um, and thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Um, it's yeah, really exciting to talk about uh, to talk about farming and also health. What, an, what a great combination of things that probably more of us should be talking about together as opposed to as separate issues. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, as you correctly said, I'm based in Aberdeenshire. As you can tell from my accent, this is not where I'm from originally. Um, I grew up in very rural Shropshire, spent some time down in the southeast of England, um, and then we moved to Scotland about six years ago. Um, and yeah, I kind of wear a few hats, but uh, my main kind of three things that I'm involved in at the moment, I work for Pasture for Life as head of research on a part-time basis. Um, and in that role, um, I'm very much involved in uh, supporting and participating in research projects, but also um, from an academic point of view, but also kind of field labs and doing things in a very participatory farmer led way. And we do a lot of work around uh, 
aligning the certification standards that we run with the underpinning research to make sure that we actually have a, a, a standard that is underpinned by uh, research and academia and isn't just kind of a, a vague series of things that we've decided that we think are better. Um, so that's that's one piece of work that I do. Um, I'm also currently doing a PhD at the moment. So I'm looking at the agroecological transition. Um, I'm particularly interested in nature connection and how that drives decision making on, on farms. I really wanted to look at what farmers eat for my PhD, but um, that wasn't that wasn't funded, sadly. So in, 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 in uh, maybe in the future, that's something I'll be able to have a look at. I find uh, I'm always fascinated by um, particularly what organic farmers eat. Um, or maybe we can talk about that later. And then the final thing, as you correctly said, uh, is that I, with my husband, run Grampy and Graziers and we run uh, a 100% pasture and tree fed uh, cattle business. And we also now are share farming with our neighbour to produce um, 100% pasture fed Aberdeen Angus breeding stock as well. So we produce beef that goes into beef boxes that we sell to our local community. Uh, and we're also now going down this new new line of um, of breeding stock. So, yeah, quite a lot going on up here. Yeah, it sounds like you are keeping yourself very busy there, Nikki. That's a fascinating combination. Yeah, lots going on. I have, um, I do have ADHD. I think that helps to keep me busy. If I stop any <laughs> one of the three, everything grinds to a halt. So I have to maintain kind of constant motion to 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 keep going. And and there's no way I'm going to let you even go near my fridge and have a look what's in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I can tell you now. I would I would love to see that study because I. Uh, I all the vast majority of my patients who are farmers, I've had conversations over the years about how just because they, uh, you know, farm beef, it doesn't need mean they need to be eating it every single day for every meal. So that uh, that's that's a common conversation I have. I think I think my husband would disagree with that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so Nikki, first question, and dive straight into this. So, what what advice would you give to the consumer? if they were going out shopping of what to look for and what's the best meat beef for them to buy? Yeah. I mean, I, I really kind of, I'm in the Michael Pollan school of thought here on the kind of, you know, eat, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. Um, and yeah, I probably don't always follow that myself, <laughs> but I think what's really important is that, that folk buy uh, food that, is the, as close to the raw ingredient as it possibly can be. And I think that's something that we try and do. And it's something that through Pasture for Life, we really try and encourage uh, consumers to, to, you know, to buy food, uh, particularly from a meat point of view, that is as close to it coming out of the, coming off the carcass as possible. So buying cuts of meat rather than meat that's gone through, you know, various process iterations to end up as a final product. Um, and I think that, there are challenges around that. Um, we live in a in a kind of you know we live in a capitalist society where people have to work really hard, and uh, most families require two incomes in order to to meet their basic needs of paying the mortgage, keeping the lights on, keeping the fridge full, um, at the bare minimum. You know, keeping the car going, keeping the kids clothed and fed, etc. Um, and because of that. People just don't have time to cook from scratch. And I think that's a massive issue. I think it's much wider than uh, there are issues relating to like knowledge, but there's uh, and skills, but it's a much wider issue relating to the types of lifestyle that we're all trying to kind of busily keep going and the financial pressures that many of us feel we're under. So, um, yeah, kind of it's very easy to give that advice of having of buying food that is as close to the the raw product as possible whilst recognising that there are multiple challenges around people being able to do that, having the time to do that and having a headspace because like planning what you're going to eat and getting stuff out the freezer and all, you know, we all know it's hard, right? There are times when it's easy for me to sit here and say that. And I've just been really lucky for my dinner tonight. I had some uh, beef sausages that were our own beef, which was delicious with a load of veg that I got from a local organic veg box scheme. And we swapped beef for veg, um, you know, and I had the time and the kind of headspace to plan that, get stuff out the freezer, get the oven warmed up and do all of those things. Um, but sometimes it is just getting a pizza out the out the freezer and chucking that in because that's all you can kind of cope with at that at that point. So, yeah, I think it's it's easy to give advice, uh, but we all have to we're all human. Right. So we can't always follow it every day. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. Uh, I picked up on a couple of points, like you're saying, having the the time to do it. Uh, it's something that I've often spoken about that food, diet, eating, however you want to put it today, 
it, it's a necessity for living. It, it's not an, an experience anymore. People don't do it for pleasure. It's almost an inconvenience to have to eat in today's society, which is sad, really. And then going back to, you know, the knowledge on food, um, a number of years back, we had our own farm shop, um, which my sister ran when she was with us here. And it was even myself, it educated me hugely having our own butcher on site. Uh, and it's just showing people, customers, you know, people come in and say, well, we can't afford to have beef. And you say, well, no, you probably can't afford to have the cuts that you've always been used to having. But actually, have a go at this. Try some of the four-quarter cheaper cuts. Just cook it a bit slower. And actually, it's far better meat, far better quality, better taste, more succulent. And it's just helping people to understand what to buy and how to cook food as well. Yeah, so I'm I'm I've been involved in developing an education program for children who are 10 teaching them about food and nutrition. I think there is a huge gap in in knowledge of of multiple generations actually about how to cook what you know what is good for us and I think unfortunately we've kind of had a generation where it was kind of almost um uh, it, it, you know, you were doing well in life if you were buying, you know, your kind of processed foods, your ready meals, that was almost seen as a kind of um, success. And what's led to is now lower generations who don't know how to, to cook food. Um, and I think that is that has to be a real priority going forward for people to, to get those skills back. Um, but what has really surprised me when I've kind of scratched the surface with this is, you know, we talk about things like knowledge and people not knowing what to do and time. But there is actually people in society who, you know, don't have a saucepan, don't have a wooden spoon, cannot afford to put the gas on to cook food. And I think when we're often talking about, um, you know, improving diets and things, we can forget that there are some people who are so far away from being able to do these things that there's there really are some deep seated issues there oh I totally agree and I get very frustrated that particularly the idea of like this less and better idea becomes a middle class debate um and actually loads of people for whom um access to like even just they live in food deserts they don't live anywhere where they can buy food that isn't hugely high you know that isn't highly processed so there's a thing about access there's affordability there's the kit and equipment at home to be able to do that, to be able to afford to, you know, put money on the gas meter um, and people being in that situation who are running gas and electric by a card on a meter is way more expensive than it is, you know, for, for somebody who's paying by monthly direct debit. So there's all this this consistent inequality and inequitable access to food and the resources required to get to food. And it, yeah, it is, I guess, a real, I think it's probably quite a, a strong burden for me to be so conscious of that having done you know I did a I did a master's in sustainable food and natural resources and we were really lucky that on a couple of the modules we really dug into that those ideas around poverty and access to food and um you know and the rise of food banks that just opened my eyes because I come from you know middle class family really foodie family food being food having been put on the table was never ever an issue for me growing up so to understand how difficult it is for you know so many people hundreds of thousands of people in the UK in a country that this should not be happening that for, for whom just putting a square meal on the table is is almost impossible and it yeah and it's heartbreaking that so many children are having to experience that and I think but there are things that you know like so we work very closely with our local food bank um, we have a food bank and a food hub food hub in our local town and so we're trying to work with them to make sure that we can support local our customers to pay it forward so they can add an extra like fiver to their um to their beef order and then that can go towards supplying meat into the local community so it means we still get paid as a producer we're not having to give that food away um but the local community are kind of supporting the the cost of that to then put that towards people for whom access to our beef might not be possible um and we also do things like supermarket price matches at certain times of the year so when particularly in january like when people are a bit skin and they haven't got much money we'll always do like a tesco price match um to make sure that people can access the the type of food that we're producing because actually our costs are so low um there's this interesting you know conversation about charging a premium for for a for a prod for a product that is you know a in inverted commas, a premium product, 100% pasture and tree fed beef. But actually, you know, the input costs are so, so low 
that there is an ongoing discussion and debate about, you know, why should something that costs so little to produce have a premium attached? Because it's rare. I mean, that's just playing into the capitalist idea of supply and demand, right? And how that, and the market. So if we really want to disrupt that and we want to be um, more socially conscious in our thinking, maybe we can we can accept that actually by producing something that costs so little to produce, we can we can charge a lower price for it. I'm sure that I'm not going to be popular with, you know, and that's not necessarily, I would say that's a very personal view. That's not necessarily a view of Pastor for Life. And I'm sure I wouldn't be popular with with many of my uh, grass-fed colleagues for saying that. But, you know, I think there is something in that. Um, and I think that, yeah, around like ease of access and knowledge, we've really taken um, a strong step towards simplifying our cutting list. So for any listeners who don't know, when you take your um when you take your animal to the abattoir and then the carcass goes to the butcher, you talk to your butcher if you're getting somebody else to do it through a cutting list. And you basically say, these are the cuts of meat that I want. And we used to go all fancy and have different cuts and it'd be really intricate and difficult. And we would take, you know, if someone said, Oh, I want my sirloin steak cut this thick, we would do it. And it just became this really complicated, difficult thing to manage. So we said, actually, do you know what? We're just going to really simplify this. And so basically we just have mince, stewing steak, um, we have um, top side and silver side and then a, a generic slow roasting joint that could be brisket, it could be from anywhere else on the animal that is a kind of, you know, does well from slow roasting, um, fillet steak, sirloin steak, rump steak, ribeye, and that is pretty much it. And then the offal. Um, and then anything that, oh, and we also do beef sausages because they're really, really popular in this part of Scotland. And actually that means that anything that doesn't go into those more simplified cuts just goes into sausages, which actually we can sell quite cheaply, are really accessible. Um, we work with our butcher to keep as much out of them that isn't beef as possible so that they're not kind of full of highly processed unknowns. Um, and when we, and then in the summer, we also do some burgers and they are literally beef and a bit of salt and pepper. And again, anything that goes through a bit more of a process to get it into a place that's easier for people to cook, we try and keep as much as we possibly can out of the complexity of that processing. So I think there are things that beef producers or any food producers, if you're selling direct, can do to make their food and their products more accessible and a bit easier to access. Um, whilst trying to maintain a kind of, if you like, a purity of product so it hasn't been highly processed. Yeah. I mean, I'm presuming to, for, from a non-farmer's perspective, I'm thinking, well, why why is this not can be done uh, across board? And I'm presuming the problem is scaling up. Is is that correct? Scaling up. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, do you want to come in? Sorry. Uh, scaling up, I can imagine as well. Well, Nikki, sorry, interrupting there. But also, I mean, a big issue um, which has just impacted us around here is the loss of the smaller local slaughterhouses. Yeah, totally. I mean, we have to drive two hours to get to our local abattoir. Um, there is one closer, but it's I just don't really like it there. I mean, there is, yeah, it's either an hour or two hours. And the one that's two hours away, I personally feel has much higher quality service. I think they're very reasonable in their pricing. Um, we also take our hides back from them. So we have a license to take the hides, which we then home tan as well. So we're trying to get this kind of additional product that we'll be able to sell once we kind of get even better at the tanning process. But um, yeah, the loss of abattoirs, local abattoirs is a huge issue. Um, and also a loss of specialist abattoirs that can either do that private kill or can do organic. So we're not organic certified, um, but there is currently no abattoir in Scotland where uh, on a private kill basis, you can take organic beef to be slaughtered. And I think we've also lost from a commercial scale as well, or like a kind of a large scale cell, um, large scale as well. So yeah, if you're a beef farmer in Scotland, uh, you basically, and you're organic, you, you have to sell your, you have to basically send everything down to England, which means you can't then sell it as Scotch beef. So you can't sell it as organic Scotch beef assured. You have to sell it just as organic, which is, you know, fine potentially, but that's a huge loss to the sector. Yeah, that's 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 not good at all. And this, this is one of the big issues. And the, the, we've had these government announcements recently saying they're pumping all this money into small abattoirs, but it's too little too late. I think I can't even remember now. It's something ridiculous. Like I think we're down to about fifty in the country now. Yeah, it it is really worrying. And I think um, somebody actually, it was um, Kate Rowell, who's the chair of Quality Meat Scotland, um, was very wisely was talking to me about something. She'd had a conversation she'd had where she was, yeah, this absolute kind of pearl of wisdom that just really I thought you've nailed that, Kate. She was talking about um, when fishing when fishers fishermen uh fisher folk are 
with their catch in order for their catch to then turn into food you have to have a pier you have to have processing areas and those are all very heavily government supported and subsidized um and she was trying to explain to MSPs up here in Scotland that it's the same thing like we have to have a much better infrastructure to, in order to get the food from the farm to the plate um, and that there is really a need for you know for government intervention and it isn't enough just to expect um, the free market if you like to meet the need for the private sector to meet the needs because that you know the skills there are skills gaps there are issues around labor as we're seeing across the sector you know all parts of agriculture are suffering with not being able to get staff and abattoirs in particular really really struggle because you know it's it's a difficult job it's not the nicest job um and requires a lot of support and help to do that effectively and to do it in a way that um yeah kind of maintains your own human health we know that there are mental health issues within abattoirs that it's it's a difficult job to do um and that's even exacerbated by the lack of staffing numbers so i think there's definitely government intervention that has to happen in order to put that infrastructure in place for us to have the sort of sector and the the sort of food industry that people are talking about but are missing this really key key step yeah yeah absolutely because people want local food Mm -hmm. Talking about so talking about government intervention there, Nikki. Can I can I ask you? So this week we have we have seen the publication of the paper in Nature Food, looking at vegan and vegetarian diets compared to meat eating diets. Basically, looking at the 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 discrepancy in the environmental impact of these diets, and saying that people who have meat eating diets, are, um, it has a significantly higher impact on the environment in def several different categories. Um, because this is so topical, so I'd love to hear your take on this paper. I don't know if you've you've read through it or, or looked at any praises of it, um, and I, you know what you what you think of it and 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 the implications that are for kind of the government going forward. Yeah, um, I've read the paper not in full. Um, I've been on the road a lot since it came out, so it's been difficult for me to find time to sit down and read it but the first thing I want to talk about with is within the methodology um so I think that's a really important aspect that needs that kind of bears discussion uh, or re requires attention which is the idea of an LCA so for anyone who's not clear an LCA life cycle assessment and it's a, a standard methodology there's various different ones that can be used to basically establish what is the the environmental impact but it could be social it doesn't have to be environmental so it can be greenhouse gas it can be biodiversity it can be social impacts of any product or process uh, and the great thing about an LCA is you can kind of give it a boundary so you can say from the from from the point at which a seed is planted in the ground through to the point where someone eats that that vegetable or you can say from the point at which that plant is harvested to the point at which it leaves the processing unit so you determine what the boundary is before you do your LCA and you undertake that assessment um, I'm involved in two research projects at the moment that are looking at uh, that are using LCA for livestock across Europe. And what is becoming increasingly obvious is that the LCA methodologies bear very little resemblance to many of the farm systems that I'm familiar with. Um, so I, I think it's worth saying that there are definite challenges. And although, although the methodology would be identified as sound by uh, through the peer review process, what we're really finding and are being very much challenged by at the moment is that that peer review process doesn't reflect or understand the realities on many farms in 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 particularly in the UK um, and actually across Europe. Um, and I think that yeah, I don't want that to sound like a kind of um, conspiracy theory approach, but it is genuine genuinely where we are with LCA. It's a great methodology. However, it is based predominantly in, in in data sets that, as I say, don't necessarily reflect where many farms are now. And an example would be um, they talk about like carrying capacity of land. So there's this assumption that if you are um, if you're feeding that, that the way that we use land is if it's grass, then animals go on it. And if it's arable, we grow a crop a year now. We know that loads of farmers, and this is not brand new practice, this is historic, it's just finding a kind of resurgence now, is that, you know, cover crops are increasingly being used within arable systems. Um, and actually, we are seeing arable crops that are sown in the winter being grazed, for example, by sheep in the in the very early spring. So that means that, for example, if you have an arable field where you are growing a winter crop of cereal, you've got that winter crop of cereal that's going to be harvested later in the year. 
at a point in the year, it may well be grazed by sheep, which actually reduces the fungicide requirement and also some of the pesticide and fertilizer requirement to go onto that that crop. Once you've harvested whatever that cereal was, we then potentially could be having a cover crop growing in, which could be grazed uh, again later in the year by another set of animals. So that example is one field that actually contributes to the production of three different food crops. That model is never and hasn't been able to be replicated within any LCA modeling that is currently in use. For me, that's a real challenge because we see the shift in what's happening in our farming systems not being reflected by the science that is being used to drive policy, which has a direct influence on our farm systems. So I think what what we need to do whilst I, you know, we can talk about the detail of the of the paper, you know, a- absolutely. But we also need to understand that what farmers are doing on the ground is probably five to six, seven years ahead of where the researchers understand us to be. Um, And that is a massive stumbling block for us at the moment, particularly when the research is being used to inform the policy. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of that at the minute on arable uh, land, predominantly arable land, uh, with the new soil standards, you know, enhancing soil quality. Um, A lot of people, a lot of arable farmers are introducing livestock onto the farm for the first time. As Nikki says, growing these cover crops and bringing sheep or cattle on to graze it. Yeah, and it's it's working really well. And the amount of reduction in input that that facilitates, which isn't ever captured by a lot of the research, because we haven't been able to quantify it yet, because this stuff has become nascent within, you know, existing farm systems. So although people did it, 60, 70 years ago, it wasn't being measured back then. We have the opportunity to start measuring it now. And there are some brilliant research projects now going into that. But, you know, it's it's a it's a moving a moving picture. The other thing that we're also not able to capture very well is, you know, the, the kind of increase in people doing kind of mob grazing, adaptive multi-paddock grazing, even just like, a you know, a more... Um, uh, like a, a kind of I want to say bog standard but just like a rotational grazing you know a lot of these models are based on set stock systems and again for non-farmers that basically means that you get a field you chuck a load of livestock in it you leave them there for six months and then you come back and take them out but we know that by introducing rest into the system so subdividing those fields moving the animals more frequently allowing grass to recover behind them and also to grow in front of them can actually increase the carrying capacity of the land significantly and although you might get smaller daily live weight gain on growing animals in those systems you are actually able to carry more animals which when we come to the less and better discussion is tricky because actually a lot of the grazing approaches that are doing really good things for water quality, for biodiversity, for animal health, all actually can allow us to to have many more animals. And if we have many more animals, particularly in organic systems where they play a really key role in cycling nutrients, well, who's going to eat those? You know, but if we're being told on one hand that we need to reduce consumption. So there's a real challenge there between the realities of nutrient cycling and and health advice potentially. So, so yeah, so I think it's important for us all to understand that, you know, research programs tend to uh, capture um, this kind of uh, point in time where the research tells us X, Y, and Z, and that doesn't mean it's truth. Uh, it means it's a, a place where we are in terms of the the, the ongoing knowledge development and an increase in knowledge and, the, and the, the considerations that we need to take. But I think what happens is is in the media that 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 what where we are in the science becomes a, a truth. It becomes a binary that this is better than that, or something has less of an impact than something else. And then when farmers particularly try and kind of show, well, actually we're doing this and we're measuring these things and we're finding X, Y, and Z, it gets you know. Shunt, shut out of the conversation as just being um you know kind of anecdotal and, and and not not peer-reviewed and so therefore not substantial so um yeah sorry yeah. I've taken this in a very different direction to which you probably no, no, wanted to go it's, in it's, but, it's very yeah. interesting so my my again from a non-farmer perspective I've read the paper I actually found it very complex uh mm-hmm. and and confusing some of the methodology um I think I did understand from it that they you know they talk about the fact that they're you know they are using the data that they have and and of mm-hmm. course, there is huge variability when you are looking across farms and, and methods of farming. But they've kind of done the analysis on what what they have and tried to account for variation. But I think, yeah, that my feeling as well was that there needs to be more understanding. But equally, I guess playing devil's advocate, if you're considering that, you, you know, there are you're talking about all these advanced methods and, you know, much more environmentally friendly methods of farming. But there will still be farms that are not doing that, that will totally. be that will be doing the more archaic methods that are giving those poor figures. And so 
I, I, it's it's fantastic that there's progress, but maybe this is a little bit of a kind of pointer to be saying we need the the movement that everyone needs to be doing the, the you know the more modern methods. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's a and there's I don't think uh, any farmer uh, that I have spent a lot of time, particularly recently through my PhD research, on a lot of farms that are not my. Um, I've been pushed out of my comfort zone, shall we say, and I don't think I've met one farmer who has said to me, I don't care about nature and I'm not interested in getting being a better farmer. Mm. I I just haven't met any. I don't know, you know, I don't know, Charlie, if you think different. No, not at all. And this is something I always go back to. So one of the things that's always thrown at me as a farmer is, you know, oh, you're a wealthy landowner and, you're, you know, it's all hereditary and everything. What, you know, if that is the case, I mean, there's plenty of new entrant farmers doing fantastic things, but who in the right mind would want to devalue their assets? Every farmer wants to leave their land in a better place for the next generation and so on. We're all looking to make things better and we're all, you know, love every farmer you go to. You know, you might not highlight it. I mean, I'm not in any environmental schemes personally, but actually, I love, I've got plenty of, you know, grassland strips along watercourses, little bits of woodland, areas of wildflowers we've planted, just because I want to do it myself, not because I want to be paid for it. It's my own little nature reserve. And I think every farmer I know of has got that spot on his farm where he just likes to go to or she likes to go to for half an hour just to unwind and forget about things. I, I didn't yeah. think you had half an hour in the day, Charlie. Where's this come from? I do it at night. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think that's a it's a really about these GPs working uh, six <laughs> hours a day and uh... nine to five. Yeah, never at the weekend. But I think there is what you're saying as well, Nikki. Um, where you're talking about you know different types of farm. and we were talking. Rach, you said about you know these archaic systems that are probably feeding into these bad results but actually I mean it's a good time to select you know talk about the difference between myself and Nikki so Nikki is mm. a live grazed silver pasture so animals in trees livestock grazing in trees where I my, my cows as you know are indoors predominantly all year round we'll have a small amount that go out for a short period grazing but we are a very intense system well yeah, yeah we are we're an intense system the house um but this this is where I, I really get on my high horse and struggle with the whole less is better argument. And, and what does better mean? And, and I think it's really lazy talk and journalism when you often see it in the press that you, we've got to eat better. Now, I could argue that my livestock and what I produce is better um, just because of the quantity I'm doing on the land I'm doing, I'm making it more affordable and available for all. You know, it, it can be argued, depending on how you look at the measurement, but if you look at like the carbon footprint, intensive systems often have a lower carbon footprint when you look at it per kilo of produce. But that doesn't mean to say that my produce is better than what Nikki's producing. And, you know, she's producing a fantastic high-end product. She's doing amazing things for biodiversity um, and everything else like that. So for me, it's, you know, having different systems and all working together. And we just need to help the public understand what's available and what to look for. So somebody, you know, I've got no problem with somebody saying they don't want to eat beef that's mass produced in sheds. Fine. You know, go to Nikki, get some of her wonderful produce. But let's show people how food's produced. I'm, I'm not ashamed of how I produce food. We just need to help people understand and be able to make better informed decisions. I think that's a really key point, like what is better and who is it better for? I mean, you know, if we talk about nutritional quality, there is well-established research that talks about dietary, um, what's being fed to the animal has a has an impact on on the end product, whether it's meat or milk going into the human and what the he human health implications are for that. We, we know that's the case. There's lots of research to support that. Um, and we have explicitly tested Pasture for Life certified beef and milk in those systems and so we we can say you know with some with some fairly strong understanding uh, or fairly strong evidence you know this is the work that Gillian Butler and Hannah Davis and others at Newcastle particularly were doing that you know 100% pasture fed meat and milk has um 
an improved or a more suit a better for health a better for human health omega-3 to omega-6 ratio you know the long chain um amino acids are are of a um a prevalence that are protective of health rather than causing a problem for health um and that the omega-3 ratio is uh the amount of omega-3 in um fatty acids in 100 partial fed beef means that it meets the requirement through European law to be able to put a sticker on it that says this is a source of omega-3, as you would find on a, you know, on a tin of pilchards or whatever. Yeah. So that if you if all you're interested in in omega-3s, then yeah, one could argue that that's better. If what you're interested in is the uh, carbon footprint per litre of milk produced, then yeah, Charles's system is probably going to be better than 100%. Probably, we don't know because we don't actually have all of that information for um, 100% pasture-fed dairies. We're still working on that. That process is ongoing at the moment. Um, But as it stands, you have to determine what better is. And we don't have enough knowledge around nutritional density, which is a term that gets thrown around a lot without really many people understanding that. And there's brilliant work happening in the US that's being led by um, Stefan Van Vliet, um, who is um, a researcher, an academic who's looking at trying to solve this issue of nutrient density and how and can we sort of test different foods, whether it's meat, whether it's fruit, vegetables, whatever it is, so that we can start to understand what nutrient dense food is and, and and a way to quantify that. We've sent a load of meat over to Stefan. That's the most stressful thing in the world, sending about 500 quid's worth of beef to the US and hearing that it got stuck in Alabama for two weeks. That was terrifying, but um, I'm glad I wasn't the person that opened the box at the other end is all I, I can say. say. I, was hope, but, I hope that was frozen. Yeah, I mean, it was frozen, but I'm sure it had defrosted by that point. But yeah, the work Stefan and his team are doing is brilliant but it's still really new. It's, you know, novel techniques. We don't have enough, uh, that just hasn't been enough food tested yet. So understanding what better is, is the first thing that we need to do if we're going to have the less less and better. For me, I mean, this goes back to the question you asked at the start about food. The closer it is to its kind of original raw, if you like, uh, you know, it's we can recognize it for what it is. It hasn't gone through series of processing. Then for me, that's better. Um, and I think it is about dietary choice and preference. Like for me, organic's really important. So I make the effort to buy organic milk, for example. That doesn't mean that if I'm at a friend's house or I'm out in a restaurant and it's non-organic milk, I'm not going to drink it. But yeah. for me, making my food choices, that's what I'm going to choose to buy. And that okay. is, you know, I think that's important that we have those individual choices. Yeah. So I'd like to come in from a health perspective now, if that's okay. So if we think about what the recommendation is with meat. So the advice is from the NHS at the moment that we should be having a maximum of 70 grams per day of red or processed meat. Now, the reason that the advice is that we limit it is is for several reasons. So first of all, um, red meat has more saturated fat in it Um, and we know that saturated fat leads to basically kind of clogging up of our arteries atherosclerosis which leads to heart disease stroke peripheral vascular disease renal disease lots of different longer term implications so we have to think about the saturated fats we also have um, there is a link to bowel cancer generally with red meat which is not fully understood yet however there is a Um, a direct link between processed meats and bowel cancer. Um, So I read read some interesting information on um, Cancer Research UK, and they likened it to us knowing that tobacco causes lung cancer. We know that processed meats, because of the way they're managed, the chemicals in them, they do lead to increased risk of bowel cancer. So that's kind of, you know, the, the, the general NHS advice. Now, There are obviously benefits of of red meat, Um, great source of protein, iron, zinc, B vitamins, in particular B12. Um, And something that I see a lot is people who cut out meat from their diet um, and actually become deficient in these things. So, you know, if if we are not having any meat in our diet, you have to really know what you're doing to, to replace those factors. But also, you know, we we, we know that they are a great source of, of these things. So it's not all negatives. Um, but I'd like to come to your, your point about um, 
for example, the the benefits of the increased omega-3 and, and, and the, the difference with organic produce. And I have quite mixed feelings about it. And my way of looking at it, so I personally, I don't buy organic meat. I don't buy organic milk. My reasoning, so I have a pretty good diet. Um, I feel that, you know, if I feel that I need some omega-3, I know that I can get that from, from multiple sources. But I do eat some processed food. You know, I will buy, um, you know, I'll occasionally have fast food. I'll occasionally have a ready meal, that kind of thing. Um, I try and stick to whole foods, but certainly eat processed food. Um, and my feeling is that unless your diet is really, really top notch, where you're avoiding all of these chemicals from processing, the benefit that you're getting from having your organic meat or your organic milk, for example, is is really kind of negated by what else you're putting in your diet. And so I feel that by having, um, you know, when I'm advising to patients, for example, I want them to have ex accessible food. And yes, I would be saying to them, don't go for the processed food. Don't go for your highly processed sausages, your bacon with your high levels of saturated fats. Look for cuts of meat where you've got less saturated fats, for example. But that would be my focus initially. But I'd be very interested to hear what you, what your thoughts are on, on, on my opinion with that, Nikki. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I, I guess there's two key things for me but it'll probably end up being three or four is that um, is when you talked about processed meat, you highlighted the chemicals used. And I think for me, that's the key thing, isn't it? Like processing and the, the processing that's done in order to either um, keep, keep the food in a looking a particular way or keeping it um, edible for longer. So preserving it in some way or giving it additional flavors, textures, whatever it is, shapes um, that, you know, for, for me, that that's the, the problem really. It's the way that, we have taken um, historic methods for preserving food have been um, corrupted, if you like, and given a, a fast, uh, like a shortcut using chemicals that means that the bacon that would have been eaten or the the amazing food in the in the Faroe Islands where they are still, you know, using traditional methods to, to preserve uh, lamb, for example, and mutton, um, that that is not that's very different from you know kind of the the cheapest possible bacon that you can buy in the supermarket that's gone through loads and loads of processes and steps to to get it to that to 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 taste like that to look like that to to stay fresh um, for as long as it does so I think um, yeah the idea that that red or processed meat are lumped together is problematic for me because a ribeye steak that came you know that is pretty much as close as it could be to the point where it came off the carcass and a highly processed product that has gone through multiple iterations and processes and had all these different additional chemicals added to it those two things are not the same and I think there's a real they're issue not with the them same being... though your ribeye steak sorry to butt in will still so ribeye steak I didn't actually that's the one steak I didn't get a figure for Nikki <laughs> it's my <laughs> favorite example, a, so. <laughs> a, a sirloin steak um so I, I got some figures so we consider um high a high saturated fat contact is, is more than five grams per hundred grams so I looked for a kind of top end supermarket but top end supermarket sirloin steak and it, it, it comes into that high saturated fat content so Eve, I agree that having, you know, you know, a poor quality, you know, ham or, you know, all of those things. Yes, they they are not the same. But eating even if you ate high quality beef every single day, you're still getting too much saturated fat It's still going to have a negative impact. Yeah, I mean, I think there is there is discussion. I'm I'm really frustrated that I should have uh, got the the information about this. But Professor Alice Stanton, um, who I'm sure you know um, or know of, if you don't know her personally, uh, so she's director of human health at, at the British Society of Animal Science. She's professor of cardiovascular pharmacology at Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. Um, works at Dennis Nutrition. She did a brilliant uh, webinar for us at Pasture for Life a few months ago. It's on our YouTube channel um, on the Pasture for Life playlist. You'll find. Um, the nutri I think it's called nutrient um, nutritional benefits of of meat and dairy for, I think um, and she did a brilliant uh, explained very clearly and brilliantly kind of um, you know why certain uh, certain types of meat are do have protective health characteristics and I I mean I still find it really I mean I'm not a food scientist but I find it really difficult to understand how 
food types that have basically enabled us our civilization to get to where it is 10,000 years after agriculture started to get to where we are to now being demonized when for me very clearly it's the chemical processing and those issues and those additional kind of uh, additives and things that are going in rather than the, the the food itself and I think that the work that um, Fred Provenza has done. And if you read his book, Nourishment, you know, that really, really fascinating studies that he constantly refers to about how, you know, some of these things that are being kind of demonized, and I'm not saying you're demonizing the matrix at all. You have mm. a very obviously kind of, um, you know, sensible approach to the diet, but uh, that I do think are being demonized, like saturated fat actually are so necessary, particularly at certain mm. times in our development, like young children yeah. really need Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, and at various times, you know, I think we've forgotten as humans, particularly for women, that our whole lives are very much cyclical and we need different things at different times. And I think as a woman, I need different types of food at different times of the month. And we we have this expectation that diet is this fixed thing. And it's not just about seasonality from the four months of the year, but it's location. It's where we are in our kind of life cycle. It's where we are for women in our monthly cycle. I think there are so many other complexities around it. And actually sometimes, you know, that that phrase, listen to your gut and actually listen to what you're kind of, you know, whether it's cravings or it's, you know, you kind of feel, you know, I know that I'll be days and I'll be like, God, I really just need a big bag of salad. And it's, you know, having the ability to listen to that. And um, and I think that that's what we've got out of touch with. I mean, Charles, you said earlier, you know, food isn't, uh, it's a, almost an inconvenience that we have to eat. Mm. And we've kind of forgotten that, that it's something that is nourishing us. Like for me, food is life. And I used to be a vegetarian. And one of the reasons that I started producing beef was because I couldn't find the beef that I wanted to eat and that I wanted to to kind of give to my friends and family. I just felt it was really inaccessible. Um, and I think that, yeah, kind of reconnecting with food as the nourishing life giver it is, rather than an inconvenience or something that has to happen on the hoof because we've got a billion other things to do, that's probably the healthiest step you can take because when you start to realize that food is nourishment and you start to kind of think a bit differently about what you're eating and why you're eating it, I think you almost can't help but go down these kind of healthier choices um, and and move towards more kind of not raw food, but kind of, uh, you know, the, the things that would, we might think of as like ingredients. So, so what going on from that, what, what really worries me is that you see these headline grabbing things, yeah. Uh, you know, you should be dropping beef because of the uh, high cholesterol, whatever, and links to bowel cancer. And yes, there are links, but you forget about, like you've mentioned, Rachel, there's so many benefits as well to, I'm not saying counteract it, but, you know, the, you know, it's, it's worth eating. It's definitely a good, healthy product. But the people, I do question whether the people that are putting these stories out there and inflating these stories are those with other ideas and when we look at the alternatives that were being presented with actually so many of them are ultra processed rubbish really the sort of things that we've been told you know to avoid processed food but here it is being put on the supermarket shelves meat alternatives dairy alternatives that we talked about last week yeah but actually it's nothing more than junk food you're you're so right when i was um so, you know, when we had like COP, uh, we had COP 26, 25, I can't remember, the one in Glasgow. God, there's been so many of them now without any actual positive action. I've kind of lost track. But I was in, is, I was uh, just before the Glasgow COP, I was at an event that, you know, TED, who do the TED Talks, they put on yeah. um, an event a couple of, like a month beforehand in Edinburgh. And I was invited to go along. Luckily, um, Soil Association gave me the opportunity to go and speak on a panel. It was a brilliant event. Uh, they made a commitment that all food was going to be vegan um at the event um and i couldn't find anything fresh to eat at the event everything like they had uh, they, well that's not true at the lunches at the like formal lunch time they did have salads and they had fruit and they had veg um as part of a, a wider kind of plethora of different food types there's a lot of processed food in between sessions there were so many like snack options available i couldn't find a fruit bowl anywhere all i was being presented with were packets wrapped in plastic of foods that I probably I couldn't really I didn't know what they were I didn't know what you know I could like there was something to do with pulses or beans because there was a lot of that on the packaging but I really didn't know what it was that I was eating um and then we got uh offered I think on the third day like this or second day this kind of um burger that was like a 
fake meat stuff and I said to the guy serving it I was like oh what is it and they said oh it's a it's a meat alternative and I was like yeah but what's in it and they just couldn't tell me and I said well you know you need to go back to the kitchen and you need to find out what's in that because you can't ask me to eat something if you can't tell me what it is and nobody in the building could tell me what was in this burger and I was just horrified oh it terrifies me that people are willing to put stuff they have no idea what it is into their mouths it's just like weird so Nikki if if people listening to this you know want to buy a product such as what you're producing what have they got to look for when they're out shopping yeah well, i think the key thing is to is to use where you can independent uh, you know high street shops or direct from the farm because uh normally you'll be able to ask lots of questions to find out what it is that you're buying so obviously working for pasture for life i'm going to recommend that people go to the pasture for life website and um, where you'll be able to find all your local suppliers and um, whether that's uh, dairy products or meat um, also fiber as well so if you want to buy pasture fly certified woolly jumper you can um, and so it's I think it's yeah it's kind of spending a bit more time and energy where you can and during the year when it's possible for you to do that to start asking questions a bit more and buying as direct as possible if you if and when you can and that that would be my kind of key recommendation don't you know, give your, don't beat yourself up if you can't do it every week. It's fine. We're only human. But if and when you can, and you can buy direct from the farmer, then businesses like mine really appreciate it. And, and for those that haven't got access to the local farms, you know, somebody living in the middle of a, a large town or city, what should they be looking for? Well, they can definitely put an online order in if they can. So there's loads of people that are doing kind of direct sales via the internet. You can put your order in and you can get it couriered to your door, um, which is one option. And I think the other option is if you're going into the supermarket, if the if the only thing you do is buy British, if you're in the UK, then buy British. That would be my absolute bottom line. If there's nothing else that you can do, buy British. Yeah, 100%. And double check, don't just believe it when you see a Union Jack, because we all know that supermarkets have some uh, dodgy labelling occasionally. Make sure it says produced and reared in England or Britain. Well, I've absolutely loved chatting to you, Nikki. I've I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Um, It's going to brilliantly lead into our next guest, because I think today we've been talking about high quality food, the benefits of that and the choice that we have. But next, um, in our next episode, we're going to be looking at the other end of things. We're going to be looking at food poverty, how people survive in that situation. Um, And I find this whole thing fascinating because I feel that we are making great progress with quality and the way things are produced at one end of the spectrum. Yet there are people being kind of left behind at the other. And how we bring that together, I think, is, is a challenge that we have going forward. So. I'm sure, like we had, we said with our last guest, I'm sure we'll be asking you back for some further conversations because it's been it's been great chatting to you. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I've loved it. It's been a really lovely way to spend an hour. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Nikki. And if I don't catch up with you before, I've no doubt I will bump into you at the Great British Beer Debate next January. <laughs> Absolutely. A bit more. <laughs> Don't forget, um, if you've enjoyed tonight's uh, episode, we would really like you to follow us on the Pharmacy Podcast on all platforms. And of course, get in touch if you have any questions or any suggestions of any guests. Yeah, we're on all the usual social medias at the Pharmacy Podcast. And um, we look forward to the next episode, which I think is going to be another cracker, Charlie. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So again, please subscribe. Follow us on at Pharmacy Podcasts. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. And tell your friends and colleagues to have a listen, help spread the word. And until then, we'll see you next week on the next episode. Bye.